just felt like maybe the Lord would have me redirect what I was going to share. And so I want to consider this morning, um, what are we to make from events like this? What are we to learn from tragedies like this? And so I want to consider with you three truths that we need to remember that I trust will help us in times like this. Um, And really, this has application beyond just the catastrophic. There's the everyday life trials that we face. Um, They can be health issues that we have, go to the doctor, everything seems fine, and then you get the diagnosis, and um, things change. Your life in a moment can change. And what do we make in situations like this? What are we to learn from this? And so I I trust that this will be a help, even if you don't know this sister that I'm talking about. Um, I I think that there will be some application in this. So the very first thing that I think we can learn in times like this is, number one, that God is good. And this is the first thing that we have to come back to in times of despair, is that God is good. There is nothing more basic or more foundational than this truth. God is good. But when life gets turned upside down, uh, when tragedy strikes, the enemy will be at our side whispering to us, causing us to question and to doubt the goodness of God. He'll whisper that he's not good, that he isn't concerned about our well-being, that he doesn't care Um, And that reminded me of this account there in Mark's gospel um, about Jesus calming the storm. And as you remember, Jesus was asleep in the boat, and this is not a small storm. I think in in Mark 4 it describes it as a fierce gale of wind to the point where the waves were crashing over the boat and it was beginning to sink. So it was a, a severe storm. Um, But Jesus is asleep on the boat, and when they woke him from his sleep, do you remember what they said? Do you not care that we are perishing? Uh, That's in verse uh, 38 there of Mark 4. And what was at the heart of that question, do you not care that we are perishing? Um, Certainly they were afraid because it says that. Uh, Right there in the passage, Jesus asked them in verse 40, uh, why are you afraid? So they obviously were afraid, but also the question implies a doubt about the goodness of God. Do you not care? There's that element of doubt in there. And here's the reasoning with this question. Number one, if God does care, then he wouldn't let this trial happen, or two, If God doesn't care, then he isn't good. Um, And the second one is correct. If God doesn't care, then he's not a good God. But the first one is a uh, flawed reasoning. If God does care, then he wouldn't let this trial happen. We first need to understand and rest in the fact that God does care. And then we need to leave the why in his hands. He may reveal to us specific purposes in bringing trials into our lives, and he certainly does that in scripture. You know, in Romans it talks about all things work together. Well, what are some of the all things? Well, he's just talked about persecution, 
uh, famine, nakedness, all these things are worked together for good. And we can understand that in kind of a broad, general sense. But Lord, why this trial? Why me now? And we don't always get the answer. So we're left oftentimes without direct answers. But the reality of it is we wouldn't understand even if he did tell us. Think about a newborn baby having some kind of um, procedure done. The, the procedure's being done for their good. And when that needle pricks them and the cry comes out and that look to mo- the mother's face, it's like, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting this happen? That's the question that the baby is asking in that cry, and that's oftentimes the question that we are asking when the Lord brings a trial into our life. Lord, why? Well, think about that baby. If the mother in that moment tried to explain to him, well, you know, if you don't have this procedure, here's all the risks of your future life, and the baby doesn't understand that. That's not what the baby wants. The baby wants comfort. And the same for us. We don't understand. If the Lord were to explain it to us, we wouldn't understand it. What the mother can do for that baby is she can hold them and assure them of her love. And so it is with God, um, with us and God in our trials. He reminds us again and again, God is good and your father loves you. That's the encouragement that we have from Scripture. God is good, and you are loved by your Father. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Nahum, which is minor prophet there, near the end of the Old Testament. If I was counting right, it's about four or five books from the New Testament there. Nahum chapter 1. I came across this verse yesterday, and the context of it is what really stood out to me here. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. I'm going to stop right there just for now. What is the picture that you get of God in verses 2 through 6, what we just read there. Some of the things that stood out to me, he's avenging and wrathful. He's powerful. He's awesome. And he's angry. I mean, these are some of the descriptions right here in this passage. Um, But then we go on, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, 
and he knows those who take refuge in him. So right in the middle of the description of the terror of God, Nahum reminds us that the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. This is the reminder right here in this description of the terror of God. You have this wonderful encouragement to the believer of the, the goodness of God. So what is, the Lord, what is God telling us here? Certainly there is warning about coming judgment and the awesome power of God, but there is this reminder, the Lord is good. I am strong and can support you. You will not be swept away in the coming destruction if you seek refuge in me. And we need to hear this every day in every situation, both blessing and trial. The Lord is good. In times of blessing, uh, when you sense the smile of God upon you, um, you might sing it in a song. The Lord is good. It's just flowing from you. The Lord is good. You're turning to Psalms, and there's all these encouragements. Psalm 100, the Lord is good. But we also, in times of trial and distress, need to say this as well. And we may not be able to sing it with joy in a song. Instead, it may be said through tears, but said in faith nonetheless, the Lord is good. Our circumstances don't change the reality, but God is good. And closely related to this, um, God is good, and all that he does is good. Andrew brought this out um, a while back in a message, and I thought maybe we could turn to this in Genesis chapter 1. This is the account of creation. And there's a lot of verses here. I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit, but hopefully you can follow um, and see here what I'm talking about. So this is, we're all familiar with this, the, the account of creation. Genesis chapter 1, and beginning in verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. Um, and then verses 9 and 10, God said, Let the waters blow and the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And then verse 16, um, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And I think I'm going to skip down now um, to verse 25. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then right at the end of the chapter here, verse 31. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
So we see the pattern here. God said, let there be, and it was good. God speaks, and things happen, and when they happen, they're good. That's, that's the repetition that we see over and over again in this section of scripture here. To drive home the point, everything God does is good. There aren't some things that God does that are good and other things that are bad or even ordinary or even less good. Everything that he does is good. And verse 31 especially drives it home. It was very good. If it comes forth from God, it is good because he is good. And we must remember this, especially in times of trial. God is good. So that's the, the first one, and these next two won't be nearly as long. The first one, God is good. The second thing that we need to remember in times of trial is that we live in a fallen world. And we just looked at the account of creation, and it says all that God made was good. But when we look around us and we see death, destruction, and evil, that's, it causes kind of a question to come into our minds. What happened? Everything that God made was good, and now this. What happened? Well, Genesis chapter 3 happened. Adam sinned, and sin entered the world. Um, Romans chapter 5, I might turn over to that one. It's a very familiar passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So what is this saying here? Through Adam, sin entered into the world. And that's what happened there in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned. Now sin enters into the world. And now we live in a fallen world. Even creation itself is affected by the fall. This is amazing. It's not as though Adam sinned and the effects of sin remain just surrounding him in some bubble. No, it, it spread to the entire world. From what we understand of the Genesis account, there were two people walking on the earth at this time. And the earth, as far as we know, is the same size it is right now. Two people, sin enters the world and it spreads to the entire world from, from that one sin. Creation is affected by the fall. Uh, turn over to Romans chapter 8, uh, just a few chapters over. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and this is Paul speaking again here. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So in verse 21 we see there, creation is now enslaved to corruption 
and verse 22 says that creation groans and suffers. So what are we to learn from this? Why all these reminders around us every day? Driving down the road or down the road over here, we see the funeral home, and there will oftentimes be a line of cars, a funeral procession. Uh, The decay in us and around us, the terminal illness, the lingering pain and suffering from an ongoing physical trial, all these things, what are they teaching us? What are we to learn from them? Well, one thing is we live in a fallen world. Sin has affected us, and it has affected every part of creation. Death and corruption now reign in this fallen world. But the second thing I think it should remind us and point us to, that's very obvious for the, for the Christian anyway, we need a Savior. Sin and death are reigning, and we are powerless over them. We need a Savior. You may be in the prime of your life, strong and healthy, and it may seem uh, that death is a far thing away. It's not even a reality. But when a tragedy strikes and an otherwise healthy person is now laying in the hospital, it is a sobering reminder to everyone that we are still under the power of death and we need a Savior. Every one of us here, we need a Savior. So God made a perfect world, and it was very good. Adam sinned and plunged all of creation in the human race into sin. Death now reigns, but is that the end? And the answer to that is a resounding no. And that brings us to the third and final point here. Death is not the end. Um, And this is a particularly fitting thing here on this day, today being Easter, but turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, um, and we're just going to start reading here in verse 12. Says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And I'm going to stop right there and we'll continue on in just a minute. What this is telling us is that If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ himself was raised from the dead. And if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we ourselves are all still in our sins. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then those who have already died are not raised. 
but instead have perished. And you get this, this sense of the eternality of death, that if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then when that body goes into the ground, that's it. That, it's over. That's the last that you would ever see of that person. Um, but, of course, this is Paul is just using logical thinking here. If this is the case, then here's the end result of that. But let's continue on in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then I want to touch on that thing of the first fruits, but let's jump over to verse 23 also. But each in his order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So what is this idea of first fruits? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel, um, uh, Israel was commanded to bring first fruits. So the harvest comes, they, they go out, they get the first fruits, and they're to bring those in as an offering to the Lord. Has the full harvest come? Not yet. They, they got the first fruits, and they, they get that, and they bring it in. Now, naturally, our instinct is to want to say, First fruits, I better hold on to this because I'm going to need it later. But you see what the first fruit is, is it is done in hope, in joyful expectation, in faith, that there is yet another harvest coming. I'm giving this first fruits back to the Lord because I know that he is going to bring in another harvest to me. And when the time comes, I will have an abundance well, how does this all tie in here with Christ? Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. And when he has been raised, there is a harvest coming after that of the believers to be resurrected as well. It is not as though death is the final, the fin- uh, finality of it. There will be a, a harvest of souls resurrected because Christ is the first fruit of that resurrection. Well, continue on. Um, I skipped over verses 21 and 22. Um, So let's read those. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So we have here two wonderful contrasts. Death came into the world through a man, through Adam. And the resurrection of the dead also came by a man, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That just as sin entered into the world, so life enters into the world through a man, through Jesus. And the second uh, contrast here, in Adam all will die. And we see that around us every day. We see the effects of sin, that because Adam sinned, we all are going to die. And uh, so many generations already have died. But in Jesus, all will be made alive. So these glorious um, contrasts here. And then um, I already read verse 23. Um, So let's pick up in verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
death is an enemy. It really is. I mean, when we see it around us, we shouldn't, we should never give in to the sense of, well, you know, death is just a part of life. It is not a part of life. It's the opposite of life. Christ came to bring life. Death is because of sin. It is an enemy. But Jesus died and rose again and conquered death. The enemy of death is defeated. And this is why the New Testament so often refers to death as falling asleep. Sleep is not the end. I mean, who among us here has ever laid down to go to bed at night and as you're drifting off to sleep thought, this is it, this is the end? You know it's not. You're going to wake up the next morning or you lay your child down to sleep and they're nodding off. You're not, you're not weeping and crying because that's the last you're going to see of them. They're going to, they're going to wake up again. That's, that's the reality of sleep. And that's the way the New Testament speaks of death. And do we realize that? That it's, it's just for a moment here. They're, they're asleep for a moment, but they will, they will be raised again. They will be more alive than they have ever been. They will wake up new and changed. Death is not the end. And a second thought on this um, Another way to look at death for the believer is it is our introduction into the presence of Christ. And um, turn over with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23. But I, this is Paul again speaking. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And I I should have read for context here, but he's saying the two options, to remain on in the flesh or to depart and be with Christ. But I particularly want to look here at his description of death. I mean, that's what he's referring to here, to depart and be with Christ. For the Christian to die is to be with Christ. Is that not what we all desire, to be with Christ? If we have tasted something of the presence and the reality of Christ in this life, it's glorious, it's wonderful, but it is nothing, nothing compared to being with him, to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. No more death, no more corruption, no more sin. If we have tasted of Christ in this life, we know it is very good and very sweet, but the best is yet to come. And it reminded me there in uh, John 3 of the um, Jesus turning the water into wine, and that's what they said. You know, you've saved the best for last. Who does that? Normally you serve the best wine first, but you've saved the best for last. And that's what Christ has done for us. He's given us of himself here in this life, but the life to come is abundance. It's full. The best wine has been saved for last. So three truths to remember in tragedy. God is good. We live in a fallen world, and death is not the end. So 